You are now listening to The Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. Hi, everybody. This is Corey Minton with the Big Data Beard, and we are in New York City at Domino Data Labs Rev Conference, Rev 2. And we've had an exciting morning with some good keynotes from a Nobel Prize winner. That's a first for me. I'm joined by my buddy, Brett Roberts. Brett, how you doing? It's been a great day so far, and I'm really excited about this podcast. I am too. Well, uh, I'm not going to pretend that everybody has not heard of Netflix before, Wait, but I am... Net, net what? Net who? Net yeah, who? Exactly. Net where? So we've got Michelle Ufford from Netflix joining us today. Michelle actually was involved with a lot of the innovative technologies and tools that was driving data science over at Netflix. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Michelle, where is home for you? I am, I'm now in the Bay Area, so good to know. All right, very cool. So obviously we've all, most of us have heard of Netflix, but you got to tell us a little bit about Netflix as a company. Like there were some, some metrics that were shared earlier that just absolutely blew my mind. So why don't you just for the folks who maybe don't know as much about Netflix, share a little bit about it. Sure. So most people don't realize uh, how long the company's been around. So it started in 1997. And uh, in the original format was the DVD, right? DVD by mail. And um, the the company decided to experiment with streaming Mm -hmm. videos instead. And everybody said, that's never going to work. But they tried it anyway. And uh, it's taken off. The company now has, as of Q1 2019... 148.9 148.9 million subscribers worldwide. Wow. And uh, international subscribers have now outpaced domestics. So that surprises me. That's incredible. So you get more outside the country, outside the U.S. than local. Yes. Is there any like country that's like the the biggest consumer outside the U.S.? Off the top of my head, I don't know. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. cool. Good question. Um, so you said 148 million people using it. Now, Netflix, as you said, went from DVD to streaming, but there's even another evolution happening over the last few years that it's not just streaming, that they're becoming a producer of content. Yes. So they are, they're now moving into the, the studio business, and that's actually been very, uh, very interesting and exciting, Yeah. Um, where they're getting to, to take basically the same practice that they have around like experimentation and innovation and see what they can do inside of the studio. And increasingly, um, so I don't know if you know the amount of money that they're spending on content, but it was twelve billion last 12 year. Billion, billion with a B in content creation, and then fifteen billion is what's forecasted for this year. And they're trying to um, put most of that towards uh, new original content. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting. Now, how does that compare? Because that, that that seems like an absolutely astronomical amount of money, but how does that compare to like? traditional maybe movie houses that are creating content like or making movies like is netflix caught up with them in terms of the number of films they're making or are they making more uh netflix has surpassed uh, oh really they are now the largest content producer in the world wow so the number of television shows that they create um is larger than any other network or provider out there or studio that's insane I mean, just say that is more than list valuation right now, fifteen billion dollars. That's more than what list valuation was at their IPO. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. That's awesome. awesome though. Love all the the shows and the movies, but insane. 
But one of the things that, that struck me as interesting is, you know, all this content is, it's rich videos, it's 4K, right? It's these massive files that we literally just, not a, over a decade ago, we were shipping to people in their mailboxes <laughs> yep. because it was physically impossible for the internet to bear the weight of those mm -hmm. things. How, how, how big of an impact does Netflix have on the global internet? Uh Quite a large one. <laughs> I can uh, imagine. <laughs> we, I, I believe as of the 2018 Sandvine report, um, account for 15% of all global streaming traffic. Oh, my goodness. 15%. 16% when we're watching. Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So, obviously, Netflix is a, you know, the company that that's everybody uses as a like, disruptive story of you know, changing an industry, you know, RIP Blockbuster. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> we, we actually uh, had a, um, a team internally put together shirts that said, um, it had the, the Blockbuster logo on yeah. the t-shirt and it said, never forget in the center. <laughs> uh, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't actually a, a knock so much as a reminder to themselves not to get arrogant. Yeah, right? oh, that's really good. Yeah, I like that. You gotta know your past if you're gonna exactly. plan your future. So. A lot of what people will talk about when they think about Netflix is, is the ways that Netflix has been able to use data and data science to absolutely create a, an experience for your users that makes people want to come back. It's not that they have to, it's that they, they feel excited to come back and use your platform. So help me understand just at a high level how you see or how data science was really behind a lot of the innovation that happened at Netflix. Well, I think it's, I, I would actually look more broadly and say that it's not the data science so much as the culture of experimentation mm -hmm. and um, just you know being able to test things out, evaluate them, uh, see how they perform, see what does well, and iterate. And so data science is a huge part of how we do that, but it's, um, it's more broad than just even data science. Really? So it's culture of experimentation. So how does, how does a company like Netflix it, you know, empower that culture of experimentation? That is an excellent question, and I, I think it really has to start from the leadership um, and its willingness to, um, you know, to to test things out mm -hmm. and not just call up their assumptions, right? And also the um, willingness to try new things mm -hmm. and and have them fail, yeah. right? And so you you have to that really starts from the top, right? And you have to be willing to do those things. And if you do that, then the rest of it's just. In uh, iteration of that, and data science is a tool that fits within that very well, which enables us to do it at scale. Mm -hmm. But yeah, definitely starts at the top. Very cool. So you today you out you talked about some some principles that you and your team sort of ab abided to as you know things that you were trying to accomplish that drove a lot of your underlying efforts. So if you wouldn't mind, just explain to us a little bit, kind of talk us through what were those principles for speed and scale in your role supporting that data science activity at Netflix. Sure. So my team specifically was focused on on tooling to enable um, greater usability of the platform. And so we were focused specifically on like any area of innovation that we thought was going to have broad impact for our users. Mm -hmm. um, the users could be data engineers, data scientists, algorithm engineers. And we tried to look at that broadly. But um, one of the things that that you quickly see is that the tooling part almost becomes the easy part. It, it's everything else that goes around it that really? is the challenge, right? Okay. Um, for example, the uh, the the decision around simplicity mm -hmm. versus 
uh, flexibility, right? Like, which one do we want to lean into? Yeah. You, you sort of have to pick up front. And, and the, the thing that we want is we all want, we want everything, right? Mm-hmm. We want the best of all worlds. And your natural inclination is to say, well, we're going to try to go for something that's in the middle. We're going to try to say, let's find that happy medium between simplicity and flexibility. And usually when you do that, you will end up failing. Yeah. So you really have to pick like a first principle of, do I want simplicity or do I want flexibility? And, um, and then acknowledge what you're going to lose as a result, communicate that, and then you build it. And then you'll have a lot greater success with the tool that you build. For sure. Than if you just built a tool that it's going to help, but it, it's really... You just um, don't want to be, you don't want to be backed in a corner, right? Yeah, you, exactly. You don't wanna, if you pick one versus the other, it always, you end up giving up so much on the other side. I, I get that. So I'm curious though, is there, is there just like one big data platform at Netflix? Is there like a thousand big data platforms? Like I have to imagine the amount of data not only being generated internally and based on the systems that run it are insane, but I'm guessing based on all the things you're trying to accomplish, data science, the data sources from external are also quite large. So is it all coming to one place that everybody's playing from the same playbook or is there different teams that have different tools uh, dependent upon their use? It's a great question. And and the answer is it is distributed. So the company um, believes very strongly in not being overly prescriptive around tooling or how you're going to do your job. Instead, we're going to focus on what the goal is that we want for you to achieve. And you have that that freedom and that responsibility to go forth and deliver. And so what that, that means is that you might have one tool um, chosen by one team and another tool chosen by another team. But there are some uh, things that happen like at a higher level, which is, you know, we want to make sure that everybody can read all the data in the company. Mm-hmm. And so that means that we all have to have it, uh, either the data needs to be centralized or we need to have at least one centralized tool that has visibility into all the different data stores, right? And so we make decisions around that. And, it, you know, in terms of like the teams, in the platforms, I mean, there's a lot of them. <laughs> we have separate um, data platform and experimentation and machine learning and, and scientific computing. These are all separate teams that are all, you know, under the same org. Um, and, and they're closely related also to, you know, like our cloud platform, which is dealing with the streaming. But we actually create separate dedicated teams because the challenges that each one have are unique. So if, take, for example, the streaming um, data team, right? We have more than a trillion events coming in every single day. And they need to be able to to build whatever they need to build to be able to handle that level of scale. And if we really, you know, constrain them, it, it would not end up, um, you know, it wouldn't work for anybody. Um, so from the data data platform perspective, we do something similar. We have all the data that is coming through the streaming ingestion pipeline and any of the data that's coming in from our internal data stores, um, like Cassandra. It's all being pulled into a centralized location, which is sitting in AWS on S3. And we have this um, this modern data warehouse, essentially, which is just, it's S3. Um, it's it's um, structured and unstructured data, and we have a Metastore that sits over top of it. Um, but it, it's a traditional, like, um, three-tier logical data warehouse um, where you have your ingestion layer, your data processing layer, and your, like, aggregated denormalized layer. And uh, just to give you an idea of volume, we have about 100 petabytes sitting in our, our logical data warehouse right now. Wow. That is huge. Wow. Um, just by going on the numbers theme here, how many people are we talking about that have access to this data? Like how, how many people are you supporting across all these different teams? 
we we try to make the systems as readily accessible um, as possible. And so what that means is that if you're an employee of the company, you have access to the big data platform. You can go um, look at the data catalog. You can see what's out there. You can see list of reports. If there's sensitive data in it, then you might have to actually ask for some permissions. But it's it's a um, you know there's one level of uh, you know, secure permissions for like customer data. There's another one for, you know, like financial data. But aside from like these big sensitive groups, um, you generally have access to everything. That's, I mean, that's truly amazing. I, I, my my role is just getting access to data is, you know, more than half the battle most of the time. So are you seeing this openness yield better results or more efficiency across all of Netflix? I, I certainly think so. I mean, the company encourages curiosity and what I've um, what I've observed is that it doesn't matter what company you go to, you're going to have employees that are really engaged, really curious. They're coming up with ideas, and they they would like to work with the data. Actually, the company I was at before, we had um, it was GoDaddy, and we had this um, I think forty thousand servers. Right, we had a data science team, we had a platform team, but we had this one server tech who really had an interest in the data. And so he saw me give an internal talk and afterwards I, I sat with him for an hour and I showed him how to use it. And I, I just basically said, here, you have access now, go forth and play. And he comes back to me a few weeks later and he'd been playing with it on his free time. And he came up with this insight that saved the company $1.2 million just by some tweaks in the hardware setting. Now we could have thrown any data scientist in the world at that problem. Uh, not, well, I shouldn't say in the world, but any uh, data scientist in the company at that problem. And none of them would have been able to come up with that insight because they lacked that domain knowledge. Right. And so I think when you remove those barriers, you create greater opportunity for those types of things to happen. And that goes back to something you talked about today, that data science is really a team sport. It's, yes. You need a generalist, but also domain expertise. Can you talk a little bit more about that premise and kind of the idea of it being a team sport? Well, I, I think that it's a team sport in a couple different ways. Uh, one of it is, you know, there's that debate about um, generalizing versus specializing. And I think it depends on the size of your your data science practice. And so initially, you're going to want to start off with more generalists. Um, but as you want to grow and scale, the more you specialize, the, the better you're able to scale. And so now you've created a team of specialists that have different needs and different backgrounds and different perspectives. And you want them all to to work together. You don't want to like pit them against each other. So like that's the first thing. But then even more broadly, outside of like your data science or analytics or platform, you've got typically uh, in many companies like this, this competitive um, issue that exists between like security and data, for example, right? Or or between um, like with finance or with the business. And they really are sort of like disincentivized from doing the right thing for the company because they are personally incentivized to do what's best for themselves, their team, their their department or org. And it it, it creates, I think, um, like a, a lot more friction <laughs> than people might be aware of. Yeah, I can imagine. So you had you had this crazy set of diverse teams that you're having to support, right? So you're you're at Netflix. You've got data engineers. You've got algorithm engineers. You've got data scientists. I'm curious, what are some of the like the the tools like for the for the people that you were supporting? Like, what were some of the most popular tools that that they were wanting to use and 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 that they maybe were like, hey, we we like this so much, we should contribute back into open source. Like, tell me a little bit about some of the tools you were being sure. uh, interacting with. So I would say probably, um, broadly speaking, one of the most popular open source tools would be Spark, okay. right? And 
it's something that it doesn't matter what role you are. If you're trying to access data, you're probably touching Spark. You do see differences, though. So if you are a data engineer and you're working with smaller data sets and maybe you're dealing with you know, content data or marketing data, um, you're probably going to be working perhaps more with Spark SQL. Right and and maybe some Python versus if you're working on the the playback side or you know the personalization or streaming, you are probably going to be gravitating towards Scala because of the performance um, implications of that. Right, and so same thing with um, algorithm engineering because of the scale of data, you're probably going to be using Scala mm -hmm. versus data science. You're probably going to be looking more at Python. Right, so the the tools vary um, broadly. One of the I think one of the, the coolest open source tools that I've been involved with lately is Jupyter Notebooks. Mm -hmm. And that's one that I, I've seen a lot of um, interest in adoption. And I, I should clarify, I should just say notebooks because we do have folks who are using Zeppelin Notebooks okay. if they're working with Scala. Yeah. But most people are working with Jupyter. Yeah. So you, you talked about there was a, another layer on top of Jupyter, this Interact thing. Tell us a little bit about because I, I hadn't I had never interacted with in, that's how I did that <laughs> interacted with Interact. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what Interact is? Sure. So Interact is um, well, it, it's a little confusing, but it is at its core um, a a project that contributes to the Jupiter ecosystem. And I say that because it's not just this UI. So there is a UI component. That's where it originally started. And it's a next-gen UI, which is all React-based, which gives us all of the niceties of React that you don't presently have um, in the Jupyter Classic client or in, um, you know, even in the Jupyter Labs mm -hmm. client. And so Interact for us was a better building block for us to build on top of, but it also uh, leaned into simplicity, which was attractive to us for a lot of the things we want to do. It also includes other projects um, such as Papermill, which makes it easy for you to schedule notebooks to run on a recurring basis, right? So it's a, it's a library there. Um, we have Commuter, which is an immutable view only copy of a notebook, which is part of the, the component that you need to be able to schedule notebooks. Um, and, and there's some other tools and libraries inside of that project as well. Very cool. So how do you, how do you balance that? How do you strike that balance between constantly having like the newest greatest tools and technology taking advantage of all the innovation that's happening in, in open source and and frankly in closed source technology as well but how do you balance that with like you had to still have environments that are up and running and supporting 140 plus you know million subscribers mm -hmm. how would you advise people when they start thinking about balancing those need for speed and flexibility but that you still have to have consistent operations that run well are there some best practices you would give there Sure. I think it's a, it's a difficult balance to strike, but generally speaking, the more you stay current, the less the pain of that, that transition to whatever that next thing is. And so if you think in terms of, um, you know, applications or tools, you know, always rolling forward. Or if we're looking at like our, our big data image, um, which is whenever you run like a, a Jupyter notebook or any sort of Spark job, there's this image that we've built and it has all of the libraries installed. By default, we're always rolling forward. Now, that might cause your your notebook to break, but you're going to have to deal with that at some point. Yeah. And at this point, you have now a decision. You have like actually first is um, you have some indicator 
that you need to go do something because there's broke. Whereas if we don't do that and we, we say, oh, this is going to happen in the future, well, nobody's going to actually do anything. Um, secondly, if if it's very recent, then um, it's pretty easy for you to make the change because usually things try to be backwards compatible. Yeah. Um, and then the further you get out of date, the harder it is to upgrade. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're not able to do it for some reason, you can just specify that old version of the library and now you know, you've made that decision and that's an individual decision. But uh, in general, you know, you don't want to chase the shiny objects, mm-hmm. right? So don't go after like the new tech or the new toy just because it's the new thing, but always stay current on that. And then whenever you really do have some sort of compelling reason why you need to look at something different, yeah. you know, be aware of what those options are, explore them, and then just roll forward. Yeah, that's good advice. So one of the things I, th- I thought was interesting, years ago we heard um, there was this thing that came out of Netflix called Chaos Monkey, yeah. right? Which is this idea. Do you want to explain what it is or do you want- Oh, go ahead. Okay, so we, we heard this thing called Chaos Monkey, and it was interesting because it was the idea was how do you intentionally create, you know, outages, basically like problems in an environment so that your engineering team designs against what will likely be, you know, happen in the real world. Have activities like that, like that ethos of trying to do that kind of crazy thing, did that find its way back into other parts of the business besides just how do we keep the streaming operations up and running? Uh, it definitely did. Um, I'm not. I'm not uh, deeply familiar with those, gotcha, okay, but I know that there there yeah. have been other uh, flavors or variations of the the Chaos Monkey theme. Um, actually, they've evolved it. I think it's now like the Simeon Army Chaos Monkey's part of it. So I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to talk about the content creation. And you, Netflix is investing $12 billion this year, $15 billion next year. How does data science fit into the, the decisions and how uh, Netflix is making investments in content creation? Sure. So we, we look at the um, data science process as an opportunity to inform the, the content um, purchasing and the content production process. So from the you know from the the selection process around how do we spend that 12 billion dollars it starts with um, looking at models that say what is the anticipated audience for a given title based upon attributes of it um, if it's something that's already been um, created that's already um, been aired on television it makes it a little bit easier because we can actually see uh, what was the viewership of that what was the reception did it win awards if it's something that we are creating instead we try to use proxies and say what are um, similar titles or similar themes or what, uh, you know, how has this actor or this director or writer, how has their work been um, received in the past or mm-hmm. what's the interest in it? So we, we do look at that, um, but we also look at the entire content creation process beyond not just like the selection, but the production scheduling, for example, right? How do we more efficiently um, schedule those to um, uh, be, be created, right? Let's see, other things that we do on the content side, um, we do a lot with how do we market it? Um, this is actually an area that it's a big question for us, right? When you've got so many titles, what's the best way to make people aware of those titles? And we have our, um, you know, traditional marketing, um, efforts, which is something that we, um, we've actually been increasing. This is, this is a little bit newer for us to invest more in marketing, um, outside of the company. A lot of the marketing that we've done internally has been inside of the product in the form of those billboards. Yeah. Very cool. That's, I just, the idea that you have that much content that, 
and it's not just like there's like one personalization. It's personalized for every user. So you're you're actually using data science to market the right titles at the right time to the right people so that they'll mm-hmm. have a great experience. So I'm obviously a huge fan of Netflix and I love the fact that they're using data and data science to drive so much personalization for every user. So I'm a huge fan, but I understand that you're, you're moving on from Netflix. Can you tell us a little bit about what's next for you? Sure. So I, uh, I have to say though, I, I love the company. I, I love the culture. I've, I feel like it's just been uh, such an incredible experience for me to work there. It's been eye opening in so many ways, but I, I've always wanted to, to go off and, and do the startup world. And, um, you know, given my area of expertise and the opportunity and, uh, you know, my personal life, now's the right time for me to go off and do that. And so that's what I'm, I'm, um, cool going to be exploring so stealth mode that's super fun yes. we're gonna we're gonna follow you and encourage our listeners to follow you on twitter Thank you. so your twitter handle is it is michelle ufford no michelle ufford. All right, nothing we'll put weird. the link in the show <laughs> Easy enough we got it all right well hey this has been super fun to hear about how netflix is continuing to just absolutely drive cool innovation great experiences and frankly now is making great content for us and some of that's obviously been powered by data science but i want to shift gears here to something a bit more personal it's a section we call rapid fire We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal. In a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. So what is the latest book that you've read that you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, actually, it's Daniel uh, Kahneman's book, um, Thinking Fast and Slow. So I am um, probably about halfway through the book, and it's a great read. Uh, it's just, it's really thought-provoking, so... I agree. I'm actually I'm about a quarter of the way through it on uh, Audible, and it's it's incredible. I agree. It's just hearing him talk today at this conference was just it was mind blowing to think about the the amount of thought that he's put into thinking about the way we think. Like that whole yes. loop just yeah, blows talk about mind. noise for the last five years or thinking about noise for the last five years. It's kind of crazy. Know what's going on in that guy's head? <laughs> <laughs> a lot. All right. So if you had to have a song play, if you get to choose a song when you walk on stage for a presentation at a conference like Rev. What would that song be? Oh gosh! Um, I, so I love music. I'm I'm fanatical about music, and and it's almost like asking me to pick, you know, uh, your favorite child, right? <laughs> um, I, what I can tell you is, I was listening this morning to um, "High Hopes" by uh, Panic at the Disco, okay. and so that's a, that feels like that might be a good one. I think like that's it. strong. I like it. All right. So, what piece of technology is currently making your life worse? Worse. Worse. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> well, it's a love-hate relationship with my smart home and and Google. All right, we hear a lot you of went, that. You went the Google I, path. I did go the Google path. I, I mean, I, I did both, right? I bought, of course, all the Alexa stuff, and then I bought the Google stuff. And um, yeah, we have this AT and T fiber in my home, and it's constantly dropping, which is then causing weird issues with Google. So it might not even be Google's fault. It's kind of unfair to to point at them, but um, it, it's. It's great when it works, but then it just suddenly won't work, and yeah. and that's frustrating. <laughs> it's like you know, it's honestly like I the thing I just struggle with is like if, if you work in any sort of tech, everyone in your family assumes that you work in computers, which means you can fix <laughs> yes. their laptop. Which yeah. all we've the, done with this connected guy. home, yeah, all we've done with this connected stuff is just give ourselves more systems in our house <laughs> to have to deal with. Like, <laughs> that's a great, I couldn't agree I with you more. About that. Yeah, it's just insanity. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, what Netflix show are you currently binging on right now? Uh, I am, um, oh, so I was, I was not watching Netflix. Um, I just finished Orphan Black. 
which I, okay. I've yeah. never seen before. Um, and it it was amazing. Like the the lead actress plays all of these roles, and there's such depth. It's just it's amazing. And um, so I really enjoyed that. And that's actually on Amazon. But uh, from Netflix, the the one I was watching right before that was Unbreakable Commissioner, which is why you saw so many. <laughs> all the pictures. To that. <laughs> pictures. Love it. Throwing a little curveball, going off script here. Yeah. What is your favorite original Netflix show of all time, though? Um, favorite original. Gosh, I. It's a hard one. That is a so hard many one. Good ones. You know, the truth is, is that I I don't watch a lot of television. So I watch um, when I do watch something, I'll, I'll pick like comedy, like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, or um, I'll do the the Netflix um, stand up like comedy specials. Yeah. And so I loved Ali Wong's. Um, uh, she had two specials, and it was I was just laughing hysterically the entire time. That's awesome. Nice. All right. Lastly, where is the next interesting place that you're going to visit? I am going to be visiting um, Zurich next week. Ooh, yes. Beautiful place. So it's uh yeah I've I've been to um to not Zurich um Geneva. I'm sorry. Geneva. Geneva. Thank you. I've been to Geneva, um, but not Zurich, and so that's going to be fun. I'm excited. A beautiful place. I was there just uh, at the end of last year. You're going to eat lots of chicken cordon bleu. That's their food of choice there. I don't know why, and lots of raclette. You had raclette? No, it's like, the, it's like where they take a block of cheese and they just melt the top of it like under a burner and then they scrape it off on top of like potatoes and bread. Oh, It'll my, my. Blow your mind. My that and arteries, fondue. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> All right. Well, now I want to go to Zurich. Let's do it. <laughs> Instead, we're in New York City. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us to my talk pleasure. about your exciting work at Netflix and the stuff that you've got coming next. We'll make sure to follow you. All right. Thanks Thank again. you so much. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard podcast. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify.